Welcome to the Lean B2B Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne Garbigli. My guest today is Sachin Reki. He's the co-founder and CEO of NodeJoy, a collaborative notes app for teams. He's also a thought leader, a writer, a speaker on product management and entrepreneurship. Previously, Sachin was co-founder of Anywhere.fm and Fidera, which he sold to LinkedIn. While working at LinkedIn, he incubated and launched LinkedIn Sales Navigator. It's a pleasure to have you on your podcast, Sachin. Great to be here. Yeah, I have a few questions today for you. So trying to figure out how you go about learning from the market, you go about learning from different hypotheses so you can make uh, products move forward and you can get uh, reach product market fit initially, but later on as well, keep learning from your your users and your customers. Mm -hmm. So maybe first question. So uh, if an entrepreneur were to start a new business tomorrow, how would you recommend they go about doing that? Like what's the starting point? Great question. You know, I have uh, started, um, you know, multiple companies now, and uh, my approach has been kind of all over the place. You know, when I started Anywhere.fm, my first startup, uh, the origin story is as crazy as it gets. Basically, uh, we came up with a startup idea. We pitched it to Paul Graham at Y Combinator. And Paul actually said, um, you know, I hate your idea, but uh, I really like your team. So uh, you guys are in YC only if you come up with a new startup idea. Okay, okay. <laughs> and so we were required to very quickly kind of come up with a new idea, uh, did very little diligence on the idea, and then ended up kind of building out Anywhere.fm. Okay. Um, that was in stark contrast to the next startup I started, uh, which was Connected, a contact management tool that ultimately went on to sell to LinkedIn. But what was interesting about that one is I got the opportunity to be an entrepreneur in residence at Trinity Ventures. And so I actually um, really kind of dedicated my entire time in my EIR, which was almost five months, um, to really thinking through and vetting ideas in a very specific way before embarking on the idea in the first place. And that um, has sort of become the mainstay of how I kind of think through these these things. Um, And so what I always suggest is actually come up with what I call um, the eight product market fit hypotheses for each startup ideas. And so the idea is that um, you basically create a just a two pager for each of your startup ideas that covers each of the key elements um, or the hypotheses that you're making for your startup. So this includes everything from things like who's your target audience, what's the problem you're solving, how are you planning on acquiring new users, how are you planning on monetizing, how are you going to differentiate from the core target audience, and ultimately what are your success criteria and KPIs look like. And the reason I like this approach is that it's very easy when coming up with a startup idea to very quickly get excited about maybe the product and the product differentiation, but we all know a startup to be successful takes way more than just a uh, really compelling product. And by detailing each of these key hypotheses, you're kind of looking holistically at the business. And you might find, for example, that you know, while you have great product differentiation, you haven't yet come up with a great user acquisition strategy mm-hmm. to acquire new customers to the startup. You know, if any of these dimensions doesn't have a solid plan, it turns out you still don't have a viable startup. And it becomes a great holistic view of looking at all of the key dimensions. The reason I recommend this um, over some of the traditional approaches like a business plan is, you know, a business plan ends up being something that could be 10, 20, 30 pages long. 
And um, unfortunately, that length sort of gives you this false sense of precision that you kind of know what you're doing and you have all these details, so it must be right. Instead, this short one to two pager with just a paragraph on each of your key hypotheses, I find is the right fidelity to allow you to iterate on it. It feels easy to change a paragraph as opposed to change 10 pages. Um, and that's what you want to be doing at the earliest stages of your startup, iterating on each of these hypotheses as quickly as possible, but looking holistically at the startup idea. Okay, okay. So now you have a plan you're putting in place, so you can start thinking about that, iterating on these hypotheses a little bit. Once you're satisfied with the basis of that, like how would you move forward in terms of figuring out if there's a, a market demand, if it's going to connect with the market? Yeah, so I think the, the way I like to do this is initially when you're coming up with your startup idea, you know, you want to talk to as many people as possible um, to really start to bet out, um, you know, are you solving a real pain point? Yeah. Um, this could be industry experts, this could be other uh, entrepreneurs, this could be other venture capitalists. All of those are really helpful when you're kind of thinking through, um, you know, ultimately, is this going to be a sound business? The reality, though, is the number one person you can talk to is definitely your target customer. Um, they're the ones who are going to provide, obviously, the most interesting um, uh, insights into whether you're solving a real pain point. And early on in the process, I think the key thing to understand is less about kind of the product design and the product, product uh, details. You'll get to that later. But early on, it's all about are you solving a real pain point that's actually fairly painful for the end, end user, right? And ultimately the end customer. And, um, you know, I think it's really important to really understand, are you building a vitamin or a painkiller? Mm -hmm. um, and this um, sort of style of kind of customer research early on is all about pain point analysis. And so you're really trying to get at, when you're talking to your customers, understanding their day-to-day -day workflow of their tools and software or whatever they might be using, and then trying to get at, um, you know, where is the pain in that workflow today? And then sort of bringing up this idea of, hey, I'm thinking about building this product or business that might address this pain, and then really trying to understand whether that concept resonates with them. Um, and again, you're trying to still assess um, how painful is that pain? Um, because it turns out um, so many things are kind of, um, inconvenient, but do they go to the point of being enough of a pain point that'll cause your customer to completely change their workflow, cause them to buy your new product? Um, that is a certain level of pain that's much higher than just an inconvenience. So, so in that case, you're talking about painkiller versus a vitamin. Like, like, how do you figure out what are some of the signals that you're looking for to figure out that this is a painkiller or this is going to be a vitamin? Great question. And I'd say that it frankly isn't an easy answer. Um, you know, some of the things that we looked at uh, when we were building B2B products. So for example, when we were building LinkedIn Sales Navigator at LinkedIn, um, we were building a brand new sales product from scratch. Um, and you know, while LinkedIn had a general subscription for sales professionals, you know, they had really hadn't built something kind of dedicated in a deep way to sales professionals. So what we wanted to make sure is when we came up with what the key value proposition was going to be for this product, that it resonated with potential sales professionals. And one of the best questions we had was as we came up with the product and got to the point where we had even kind of a high-level kind of mock-ups of what the product might do and what's useful we started to ask our target customers hey um, if this product existed today would you put it on your roadmap for next quarter to implement it okay 
Okay. And we were talking to specifically the people that would be responsible for this. In our case, when you're selling a sales tool, it's often sales operations or sales leadership that end up being responsible for the rollout of any new sales tool to their organization. And so we went to the sales op team, we presented our concept, and we asked them, would this be on your roadmap for next quarter? And what's interesting about it is you get all sorts of answers. You get things like, well, you know, this is really interesting, but, you know, it turns out we have all these other high priority things going on. So, like, you know, it turns out probably not next quarter, maybe a couple quarters from now. And, you know, while that might sound like an anecdote that's very specific to a given customer, when you hear that five times, it means you haven't yet come up with a compelling value proposition okay. because you keep delaying it and delaying it. And you have a vitamin, not a painkiller. And so that was one really helpful question um, that really got us to the point of believing we had or had not product market fit, specifically with the concept in a B2B case. Um, and so I think that's, that's one question you can use on the B2B side. Um, I think the consumer side, frankly, is a little tougher, um, but um, definitely one question to think about. Okay. So in that case, you guys add uh, a pitch or an idea of what the solution was. You did not build a product, but you were still approaching these potential customer, potential organizations, and you were trying to see uh, what were their hesitations, the, the objections that they had in terms of uh, going with the product. That's right, actually, that's completely right. We had, you know, at that point, what I described the product as is a PowerPoint deck. Uh, okay, it was okay. literally a PowerPoint deck talking about, um, hey, here's the pain points that we perceive in your existing sales workflow. Here's how we think LinkedIn can actually make uh, that entire workflow better by taking advantage of all the unique insights and data that LinkedIn can bring to bear on its hundreds of millions of members. And here's the specific value props and features we're thinking about building to solve for that. And uh, over time, this initially started with just um, value prop statements. So we'd go talk to customers and we literally have, you know, a value prop that we wanted to kind of uh, talk to them about. In our case, it was, you know, help find the right prospect um, that is likely to resonate with your product would be, you know, one value proposition. Or you might have another value proposition around help find the best path in to get a warm introduction to your potential prospect that you're reaching out to. And we kind of ask them, which of these resonate, which of these don't resonate, um, which ones do you feel like your current tools solve well enough and which ones don't? After we iterated on those concepts um, and came up with sort of a short list of value propositions, that's when we actually started putting designers to work to kind of come up with what might this look like in a user interface. Okay. We knew that, um, you know, the initial designs weren't about um, kind of coming up with a final UI, but really trying to illustrate kind of the concepts. And so we'd come up with these UI designs, and then ultimately we kind of made this kind of click-through prototype of what this product might look like. And that became the bulk of the deck. Um, and so when we were doing these interviews, we were walking them through this deck, um, and then seeing how well that resonated. And at this point, we had done zero engineering work against the actual product. Okay. We were still focused on customer discovery and really understanding, um, do we have um, product market fit on the concept that we're planning on building? Okay. I find that really interesting. You were mentioning in a different talk uh, about how you really separate the problem from the value proposition and the solution. Uh, so can you maybe talk a little bit of why you keep the value proposition very separate in that case, and now you go about, you mentioning a little bit how you guys iterated on a few different ideas for that, but how would you go about selecting which one to move forward with? 
Yeah, great question. I'd say that, um, you know, distinctly understanding the problem independent from the value proposition, the solution is super important. And the reason is because it's, it's easier for customers to um, help you understand their pain points and their problems with their existing workflow because they live and breathe that every single day. And so getting a clear, succinct understanding of what that is, is, is independently important than your solution. I think too often when you're doing customer discovery, you jump to getting validation on the specific solution you've come up with without spending enough independent time understanding the pain point. Okay. And the reason that's really important is because it turns out you're likely to keep iterating on your solution. Your solution is going to be changing either entirely through a pivot or through small pieces of it. Um, and, and what gives you uh, sort of confidence in being able to do that is the fact that you deeply understand the problem space. And so it's really important to kind of separate the two. And then you might find, for example, that your problem is resonating, but your solution is, is not. And then that allows you to go back to the drawing board to come up with potential other solutions okay. or value propositions to address that pain point. More importantly, what you might find is that you get a lot of head nods to your solution, <laughs> but the biggest challenge is that the problem that you've come up with that that solution solves is a nice to have, not a need to have. And now, even if you go and build this product and this solution, you know, a, a customer's desire to completely change their workflow and pay for a new product to solve a nice to have tends to be way lower than you expected, even if they upfront told you that the solution is more elegant than whatever they're doing today. Hmm. That's very interesting. So in that case, like within that phase, so how do you make sure that you're actually making progress, that you're actually like learning forward and getting closer to your objective of reaching product market fit and beyond? Yeah, so like one of the key techniques that we use for building LinkedIn Sales Navigator was actually doing what we called waves of customer discovery interviews. Okay. And so what we would do is um, we might, for example, in a given week, set up five different interviews with potential customers. Um, and normally, you know, in our case, we'd have them come in for maybe an hour long session. And then we'd schedule like a 30 minute debrief after each session. Um, and, you know, we then actually um, would set up maybe five of these, either in one day or maybe over a couple of days in a given week. And what we would do is we had come up with that, as I mentioned, that kind of PowerPoint deck that we're using as the basis of our customer discovery. And we present it to them, walk them through it, get their feedback, get their insights. And after each 60-minute interview, the customer discovery team would do a 30-minute debrief. And our customer discovery team would include product managers, designers, UX researchers, and even engineering leads and test leads. And we would bring them all together. We'd be watching these interviews uh, live in real time. And then we had that dedicated 30 minutes of um, postmortem. That was really important because then we talked about what insights did each of us see from that conversation with the customer. And what I love about this approach is that uh, it's in stark contrast to the way a lot of teams work. The way a lot of teams work is you have one UX researcher out doing the interview, and then he kind of summarizes his findings and sends it to the team. You know, while that might feel more efficient from kind of a cost perspective of a number of people involved, I find it um, loses a lot of great insights because what I find in every one of these debriefs is that it turns out People disagree on what they heard from the customer. <laughs> you know, like they might actually say, oh, wait a minute, why did you draw that conclusion? I saw it completely differently. And then it forces people to get to what observation they made from that customer interview that led them to that conclusion. And then it allows you to get to some sort of consensus on, oh, what did we all really feel like we heard in terms of takeaways? 
So then um, we do this for each of the interviews, say the five interviews. And at the end of the week, we'd come back and again in a, in a uh, session, really debrief on what were the commonalities that we heard across these five folks? Okay. Uh, and what do we think are things that are clearly things that are resonating, as well as what are things that are not resonating? This would lead us to um, some kind of understanding of um, what changes we were going to make to those concepts, those value props in that deck that we were going to present. And then we'd make those changes, and then we'd do the second wave of interviews the following week. Okay. And so we did, um, you know, five or six waves of interviews um, for Sales Navigator. And, you know, this, this is kind of an expensive process. You're talking about bringing in, you know, 30 or so folks um, to go make this happen. Um, but it was worth it because it allowed us to really deeply understand um, what the product offering needed to be well before wasting engineering resources, which is far more expensive. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think that that was our process. But to your point, question on how do you know you're moving in the right direction, you know, what we realized is that you needed to come up with some kind of exit criteria um, for your concept um, to get a sense of, and we'd ask this in every interview question. The one I mentioned earlier is the one that we used initially, which was, you know, if this product existed today, you know, how likely are you to adopt it in your quarterly roadmap? What we ultimately transitioned to as we got into later waves was, um, hey, we would love if you're uh, excited about this concept to sign up for a pilot of this product. Um, and so, you know, we had formalized what the pilot program would look like. Initially, the pilot program was completely free, so there's no cost, but it turned out we did require them to onboard um, their sales team onto the product, at least a subset of them, and to go through feedback sessions where they're giving us feedback on the product, which is committing, you know, the time of a lot of their engineering team to use a new product to give us feedback. And so they really had some skin in the game if they actually chose to say that they're signing up for the, the program. And we actually made this like a mini little contract that they had to sign. Okay. Um, basically say, hey, are you signing up for um, doing this deployment even though it was a free product? And what we realized was, again, initially when we did the interviews, we got friction. We're like, well, you know, I really like the concept, but again, I don't know if I can commit my team to it. But once we started to get to the point where we are hearing the majority of folks being like, yeah, sign me up. Um, that's when we felt like, okay, great. The concept is resonating. Even the designs are resonating. Okay. Um, you know, we feel like we're really at that point where, um, you know, we have a good sense of this is going to work. Okay, so in a way, you guys set uh, a metric in place. You did, you guys decided, and then you you iterated based on the feedback towards that objective that you guys were trying to uh, reach or get get customers to 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 move towards. That's right, and I think what's interesting about that is so many people when they think about A/B testing or quantitative analysis, they think about having a core goal metric, okay. um, which is also important. But I think when people are doing UX research and really trying to iterate a product to a point of you know, do you have confidence that we're ready to build it? You can again use a metric. It's a more qualitative metric for sure, but it still is a guidepost of how are we headed in the right direction, mm -hmm. just like you would use any sort of A/B testing metric. Okay, so you kind of set a destination, and at least at that point, you can sort of decide or figure out if you're going in the right direction. That's right. Okay, okay. So in one of your talks, you made a distinction between how product teams can learn from their users pre-product versus post-product. So how would you go about identifying uh, gaps in the knowledge for your product strategy after launch, once the product is in place? Yeah, great question. So it turns out that... Um, 
pre-product, obviously you can't have people using the actual product. And so you're using these other user research te uh, techniques, whether it's pain point analysis, card sorting exercises, um, eventually get into usability tests where you're walking people through user experiences, mock-ups and click through prototypes. So that's sort of the realm of user research and customer discovery that you can do before your product launches. Once your product launches, you can still do those things and you still should do those things, um, but you're opened up to a whole new realm of customer research that you can do. Um, and this is because now you can have people actually using the product. And so the obvious one is definitely metrics-based analysis. And this is understanding the usage of the product um, by actually looking at um, you know, behavior. And so this requires you to instrument uh, the application in such a way that you can tell exactly what features people are using with what frequency, using any of the off-the-shelf available analytics tools, anything from Google Analytics to an Optimizely whatnot. And now you can kind of look at the aggregate behavior of all your users to understand which features are they using, which ones are they not using, um, how engaged are they, how often are they coming back, how retained are they, for example. And so one of the things I always suggest teams do is to set up at least three dashboards um, from metrics um, to really understand kind of the health of their business. And those are the user acquisition dashboard, okay. um, engagement dashboard, and the monetization dashboard. And so the user acquisition dashboard is all about how are you acquiring customers, um, how are they finding out about your site, um, and then how do they get through that kind of initial onboarding experience. Then the engagement piece is all about what features are they using in the product? How often? Um, how often are they coming back? Are they being retained? And finally, um, you know, ultimately we're in the business of uh, making money, so it's important <laughs> to understand how well your company is doing in terms of monetization. And that will depend on the type of business. If you have a freemium business, if you have a B2B business, if you have an ads-driven business, those metrics will look different, but we all have some way that we're making money. And so it's important to use um, those metrics-based analyses once you've launched. That being said, um, that's not all you want to do. Um, I think what ends up happening is that I see some teams end up doing kind of classic UX research pre-launch, post-launch relying um, significantly on the metrics. But the key thing to understand with metrics is that metrics are great at telling you what's happening, what the user is doing, but you'll certainly never figure out why. And so you still need to supplement your metrics analysis post-launch with customer feedback, um, direct voice of the customer that you're getting to allow you to really understand why your customer is doing what they're doing, what's resonating, what's not resonating, and what you need to do to improve it. And so what's important here is that in addition to um, leveraging the concepts of classic UX research, um, like we've talked about, you can again still do usability studies, you can do pain point analyses, um, but there's a whole new set of techniques um, that are more qualitative in nature that come um, at your disposal once you've launched the product. And um, you know, I've, I've talked about this um, with the concepts of a feedback river and a feedback a system of record um, that we can get into as well. Okay, well, we can keep going that direction. That's super interesting. So yeah, so like, you kept, yeah, um, yeah. I was just gonna say that um, you know one of the concepts that um, you know I've come up with is, is sort of this idea of a feedback river. Um, and let me kind of explain why this is important. As I mentioned, uh, so often you end up in this case where. Uh, before product launch, you're doing a lot of customer interviews, but post-product launch, you get so busy just iterating on the product and the features that um, it often becomes difficult to do these formalized kind of customer discovery sessions. And the reality is, while they're great in terms of like the feedback you get, 
most teams probably only do customer research maybe once a quarter at best, um, frankly, even less uh, frequently because of how expensive it is to kind of conduct these studies. You often only do it for major product redesigns or brand new features, but not for continual improvement. Um, and that's because of kind of the expense of doing it uh, on a regular basis. Um, but you know, as we talked about, there's a huge gap um, from simply looking at metrics. And so what I've found as a uh, kind of additional way to get feedback is to come up with a continuous feedback loop, a way that you're constantly hearing feedback from your customers on a regular basis. Okay. And so um, I think one of the best ways to do this is, is to develop what I call as a feedback river. And the idea is that create one central place where all the feedback that you're automatically already capturing from your customers is being funneled into one place that anyone who's interested on the team can access it. And so what are the, um, we actually have built this as a um, Slack channel. So we have a feedback channel inside of Slack where all of the feedback actually flows in for no joy. And so let's talk about the different elements of feedback that flow into this. It's anything from things like when a user cancels their account within NoJoy, we ask them, hey, can you please tell us why you're canceling your account? And then that automatically goes into our feedback river. Okay. Um, so you can actually see when people are canceling their accounts. We do the same thing when someone cancels their subscription. We also have a NPS survey that we run on every user um, 14 days after they've actually completed um, using the product. And so after 14 days, uh, we ask them, um, hey, how likely are you recommend this uh, product uh, to a friend or colleague on a scale of zero to 10? And then we ask them, why did you give us that answer? Okay. And so again, this actually flows directly into our feedback channel. And so because every user is hitting this on their 14th day of joining NoChoy, we're constantly every day getting NPS survey results. Um, and what's great about it is when people love your product, they tell you why they love your product. <laughs> when there's something that they don't like about your product, they tell you exactly what feature, what thing is bothering them. And so this becomes continuous feedback that we're getting. We also have done really interesting things where anytime anyone searches in our help center, that search query is sent to our feedback group. Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. And so that ends up being really helpful because it's helpful for a couple of things. First, it helps us improve our help center content. So we run every search query that anyone else has executed against our help center and make sure that you get a good result. If we don't, we add content, we add keywords, we write more articles, and we've been doing that quite a bit so we can help people self-serve. But also... What they're searching for also gives you insights into what is likely confusing about your product. Okay. We all attempt to build products that are super intuitive, but you know, it turns out it's, it's not always something that we can understand. But when people are always searching for something, um, I remember initially with NoChoy, people would always search for, how do I add a notebook? And we realized it wasn't that intuitive to add a notebook. So we made it more intuitive um, to add a notebook. Um, and so we got a lot of those insights from those search queries. We even do things like add anytime anyone mentions NoChoy in social media, on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook, um, those mentions flow into our feedback river. And so what's great about this is that now you're continually getting feedback from your customers every single day. And so I dip into the feedback uh, river in Slack, just like I dip into Twitter. So I have a, I'm standing in the Starbucks line. I have a few couple of minutes free. Instead of going to my Twitter feed, I go to my Slack channel feedback and listen to what customers are saying about my product right now. And um, this sort of kind of allows anyone in your team re responsible for product development and product design to constantly have a pulse on the product. What's great about it is when you launch a new feature, you tend to get 
more feedback about what you currently launched. And um, this ends up being an incredible way to make sure you're always getting voice of customer um, direct from the customer. Uh, you know, when I see when teams scale, one of the challenges becomes they start to outsource a lot of their uh, customer discovery work. Maybe it's a UX researcher doing research. Maybe it's product marketing talking to customers. And then the product dev development and design team is kind of having a buffer between them and the actual customer research. And um, primary research is incredibly important for anyone that's in customer discovery and, and responsible for that because it turns out that um, you know there's lots lost in translation when there's various people that are summarizing or synthesizing feedback and it's really important to get that directly and the feedback river is one of these ways to continuously get that feedback but reduce the cost of it significantly okay so you're, you're purposefully trying to stay very clear to the voice of customer to be able to learn about whatever is not going as well as you would like with the product and the business as well that's right. And trying to do it from a perspective of, <coughs> excuse me, of understanding why. Okay. Um, because, you know, the metrics analysis are, are going to tell you that, hey, people aren't using this feature or people aren't being uh, retained. Um, but the why is the hardest part. Um, and that's where there's no substitute for voice of customer uh, to understand that. Okay, okay. So maybe along, along that line, so you made a really interesting distinction in your writing about how uh, uh, the, when you're making changes, it's either about increasing precision or about changing an hypothesis afterwards. So could you explain that a little bit more? And, and when do you know which avenue to take? Like when, when do you know which is which? Yeah, so like, you know, one of the interesting things is when we talk about um, kind of product market fit hypotheses, you know, those initial eight hypotheses that every project or product or feature has, um, it turns out that you um, always start with a hypothesis that you came up with. And I think when people think about kind of doing customer discovery and customer research, they simply think about this idea of, okay, I'm either validating the hypothesis or disproving the hypothesis. So they're thinking, okay, great. The feedback I've gotten from my customers validates the hypothesis I had. Um, so let's move on with the world or, uh-oh, it doesn't validate it. So we need to change it. And so that's the concept of simply kind of pivoting on a, on a um, hypothesis. Okay. So you might decide, for example, that when you're talking to a customer, it's validated, great. Or you might decide that, no, it's not resonating with the customer. So now you need to pivot on it or change it. Um, so that actually does happen. But what I think people forget is the more common thing that you should be doing is increasing the precision of your hypothesis. And so let me give a great example of this. When we started Sales Navigator, um, building Sales Navigator at LinkedIn, you know, we're like, okay, we want to go after uh, sales professionals. But that's a very kind of broad statement. And what we ultimately did through lots and lots of customer interviews is to increase that precision of who our target audience was. And that was by understanding the core assets that LinkedIn brought to bear, understanding the kind of value propositions we were going to solve for, and really by interviewing lots of different kinds of target customers, starting to understand who um, these value propositions and solutions actually resonated with. And what we did is we went from this idea that LinkedIn is building a sales tool for sales professionals to LinkedIn is building a B2B sales tool specifically focused on B2B sales reps, not B2C sales reps. Uh, we were also deciding that we were going to have sort of a focus on enterprise sales reps. Um, we wanted to build something that was enterprise scalable, um, that worked for the largest organizations and largest sales teams. But we also got into specific sectors. We knew that 
uh, LinkedIn's tools would obviously resonate with people in the tech industry, but we also found financial services as a strong secondary market to go after. Okay. And so now we're getting pretty specific about the target audience we want to go after. B2B sales reps, you know, in larger enterprises with uh, either a tech or financial services industries. And that is an example of increasing precision of your hypothesis by virtue of doing customer research. And it turns out actually most of your time spent in customer discovery should be increasing precision because our hypothesis in general was probably somewhere in the ballpark of right, but not detailed or granular enough. And that's why I think it's super important to spend that time on increasing precision and think about your iteration, iteration not as just validating and pivoting, but instead as adding meat and substance to the understanding of that hypothesis. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, maybe last question if you still have time. Uh, so how would you prioritize then those learnings in terms of improving the product? Like how would you go about figure out what is coming out of the, 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 the feedback, feedback river and everything else, and then figure out like what's the next thing? Yeah, great question. So that kind of uh, jumps into the next concept I have, which is developing a feedback system of record. Okay. And so the idea here is that the feedback uh, river is amazing for getting direct voice of customers that anyone can tap into. But it's not enough to start making product development and pro product roadmap decisions. And so what you need independent of a feedback river is a feedback system of record. And this idea is that you have one place that you can go to to look at the tallied up customer feedback across all of the sources of feedback. And so the idea here is that um, this is sort of its CRM for customer feedback. Um, and so um, you have basically this place where you can go, see all the feature requests that you've gotten, and see how many people have actually requested that. And in some cases, you're even putting specific names of those customers that requested it. And so the way we've developed this at NoChoy is that we've actually made our feedback system of record public. Okay. So we actually have a, um, a web page called Feature Requests, and it's a page that any of our users can go to to actually vote up various features that they want to see added to the product. And anyone can add new features, anyone can vote up on existing features. But what's important about it is not only is this end user facing, but what we also do is we've made this um, actually something that we use internally. So when a customer sends us a support request and asks for a feature, we go and upvote on their behalf in that same tool, um, that feature request. And that makes it so that we have one central repository for customer feedback. And I've seen what happens inside of organizations more classically is that they have, even if they have a customer facing tool, the internal system that they have is completely different and that's unfortunate because now you have two different systems with two different tallies that really aren't talking to each other and so we've really built this in a way that it's one system and often when we reply to the customer we actually tell them hey thanks for the feature request i've uploaded this feature on your behalf on our feature request page and we link them to the feature request page and now next time they have feedback they they automatically go to the feature request page themselves to go add feedback and participate in this discussions happening there um, and that allows you to have one central place where you have feature requests um, and tallied results. What this allows you to do is that when you go into your um, roadmap planning, whether it's your quarterly roadmap planning or sprint planning, now you're, you often want to be using customer feedback and now you just can quickly pull up your system of record and see, hey, what's the top requested features? What's trending amongst um, what's now become very popular? Um, you know, given the themes that we want to take on for this upcoming quarter, what are the areas that customers have been asking for uh, most? 
and what's great about it with our system of record is it's not only kind of a upvote list of features, but there's a whole discussion forum on there. Okay. And so you actually get specific feedback that are like, hey, when you implement this, I hope you implement it this way, or don't forget to do this, or don't forget to add this feature to it. Um, so that's super helpful. But also, when we start designing that feature, now we can go back to a set of users that are very committed to this feature, maybe even send them mock-ups. And we've done this in the past, where we send them designs and said, hey, guys, I know you're super interested in this. Here's how we're thinking about it. What do you guys think? And we part involve our customers into this process and we're involving the subset that are really kind of interested. And so now the feedback system record becomes kind of an important piece that you can use to actually prioritize um, your uh, ideas to come up with that roadmap. Okay, okay. And so one specific caveat I do need to mention though is that when, when I first described this to people, people were like, okay, great, I got my system a record. Um, <laughs> now let me just uh, implement the top request, right? That's all I need to do. And actually, unfortunately, the answer is no. Um, that actually simply implementing the most requested features is not um, a great product road mapping strategy. It's certainly an input to the process, but it's not the end all be all. And there's a few reasons for this. It turns out, um, you know, there's a lot of things that you're optimizing for in a business. Um, you know, when we talked about these kind of three pillars of user metrics, user acquisition, engagement, and monetization, what you find is that when you're getting feedback from customers and you actually implement those improvements, that's likely to improve the engagement bucket. It's likely to get your existing users to use your product, product more regularly and to get them to, um, you know, retain more heavily. That's great, but it turns out as a business owner, you have to care about these other two dimensions as well. <laughs> how do you acquire users and how do you monetize them? Rarely are you gonna get feedback from a customer being like, you should charge me more or you should put some feature behind a paywall. Um, so you're rarely gonna get monetization feedback, but you still need to action that into your roadmap. And you're rarely gonna get user acquisition feedback because it turns out the customers you're not talking to are the ones that you aspire to get through user acquisition. And so there's things that you have to juggle in the business that are independent of user feedback. And so it's important to take that that holistic view as you're coming up with your roadmap. Okay. Equally important, it turns out you might have ideas of where to take the product that your customers aren't even thinking of. And so customer discovery is no replacement for getting rid of having a vision for your product. And so it's still very important for you to have a vision and to independently come up with big innovative ideas that your customers might not be coming up with and then to prioritize that accordingly on the roadmap. And so those are just some of the reasons why you can't just take um, you know, the list of customer requests and implement them. Um, but it's an incredibly important source of information that you certainly want to take uh, very seriously when you're doing your roadmap planning. Without such a system of record, unfortunately, what I see is a lot of recency bias, where people are working on the roadmap, they decide, oh, we should implement these customer requests, and it's literally the customer request they heard last week um, from kind of the loudest, uh, kind of most angry customers, as opposed to taking a holistic view on what really is the challenges across your entire user base, and that's what the system of record solves for. So you're because of that and because you're looking at the trends, you're able to determine like what are the patterns that are coming up and what's currently the, uh, the, the, the bird's eye view of what's really happening. That's right. And you're able to have that bird's eye view and then to put that in the context of what your business goals are and then to decide what the right kind of roadmap elements need to be. Okay. That's super interesting. Thanks for taking the time to chat today. That's really appreciated. I think the, the, the listeners will get a lot of value from that. Where can people go to learn more about your work and to give uh, Node Joy a try? 
Yeah. So like, um, if you're interested in more of my thoughts on product management, I write a blog at satchandricky.com. I've written over a hundred blog posts, videos, podcasts, um, kind of talking about product management, product research, entrepreneurship. Um, so definitely check that out and would also love you, love for you to check out our product, uh, notejoy.com, which is a collaborative notes app that makes it super easy for you to capture notes and then share those notes with anyone on your team. So just head over to notejoy.com, um, to give it a try. Awesome. So we'll share the links and really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.